no Mickey show. Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by we live in time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues, continues. The No Mickey Show Welcome to the Nomi Key Show. You are watching Femme Friday. Femme Friday, of course, is an exclusive special thing that we do on the Nomi Key Show to address the inconsistencies and frankly, the bias that's happening uh, in the social media algorithm and uh, not, not having enough diversity in voices, whether it's women or people of color who are hosting shows or appearing on shows and the stories uh, that relate to their lives and our lives. I'm very excited because uh, we have a great show today. We're going to be talking about the healthcare industry. We're going to be talking about Afghanistan. Uh, lots of news this week, crazy news this week. Uh, so it's going to be a very exciting show. And later on, we're going to offer you an exclusive interview uh, from our book club. If you don't know about our book club, you can check it out at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. With the book club, you get swag and you get books in the mail, mailed to your house, because we have a partnership with Verso Books. I don't know if you noticed, but we have a lot of Verso authors on our show. We support their work. They have a full scale, very diverse collection. And uh, it's really given us the opportunity to have really thoughtful conversations with their authors about uh, upcoming books and the book club, of course, is a special place to do so with our book club community. And of course, as always, make sure to click subscribe, subscribe and like over on YouTube and join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show and become patrons. And if you're not joining us on Twitch, that's where it is. So go check us out at Twitch TV. All of the information for all these places, including social media, is in the information section. All right. So I wanted to talk today about the tale of two presidencies. Uh, you know, this this term has been spreading really since the beginning of the Trump era. And I, as somebody who spent a lot of time uh, working on reforming the Democratic National Committee, on challenging the DNC, on feeling the wrath of a lot of folks who are in power or make a lot of money off of the Democratic Party. I always found it really odd when people would use this term Trump derangement syndrome. And part of that is because I believe that we're sophisticated beings and that we can understand the great threat of a right wing that is moving further and further right and trying to captivate and capture uh, populists and prey on people who are feeling economic anxiety, um, anxiety regarding their identities because of, of, of the, the world that we live in, because our government and many other governments across democratic governments around the world have not been able to provide uh, their citizens with a well-being, um, a social safety net, jobs, economic opportunity, safety, actual safety. And this makes it really ripe, especially when there's income inequality that is soaring for uh, right-wing leaders parading as populists to come, come in and swoop in and try to steal that demographic to win elections for the right wing. So that is why I think that as long as we're breathing air, we should be fighting fascists or pseudo-fascists. But we also need to recognize the need to uh, challenge the neoliberals who stay in power and anybody who gains power who's there representing and is dependent on the left. But with that being said and done, they're not the same. And if we continue to have keep having this conversation, you know, ultimately, when there are folks out there saying, don't focus on Trump, only focus on the Democrats, 
And then they also don't want us to be electoral. What do they want us to do? I believe that we should always be fighting for what is best for society in the moment, for our material interests. And we should be focusing on strategy and we should be organizing. We should be using our voices and our platforms. You can do two things at once. But these two clips to me illustrated a much more concerning symptom. And at first glance, you might think, oh, this is just Trump running his mouth again. But I think this is signaling something much, much worse that I, you know, many folks are starting to get a sense of uh, given the pandemic and where we stand. So let's play this clip of Donald Trump. Forget we've captured, we defeated this group largely, defeated ISIS 100% of the caliphate, 100%. And we wanted to do 100%. Okay, so number one, he's running a press conference. He's no longer president. and unlike most presidents who sometimes weigh in or show up at the end of a primary or an end of an election to support their party's candidate, for the most part, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong, they stay out of politics. Donald Trump, of course, is not doing so because he's a narcissist and he feeds off of this and he wants to defend whatever legacy he has um, or whatever pseudo legacy, you know, he wants to take credit for, uh, you know, what he ran on, I guess, the success of what he ran on, that he was you know, he didn't he, he wanted to pull out of Afghanistan, um, but it doesn't really suit anybody except for Donald Trump. On the other hand, it also it, it does suit the Republican Party in that he's out there speaking and he's fighting Joe Biden. Now, keep this in mind. This is not about Afghanistan strategy. This is about using the Republican Party's biggest uh, biggest weapon against someone that could not defeat. They couldn't even defeat him, the current president. The current president's approval ratings are low, understandably so. Uh, we get into, we have on the show, the details about you know how we should have pulled out of Afghanistan, whether we should have right now, what we're supposed to do moving forward. What does this mean for foreign policy for progressives? What does this mean for the Democratic Party's foreign policy? How do we differ compared to the neocons? I mean, we have discussed this ad nauseum, but the fundamentals here are very clear. Joe Biden's approval ratings are low. Now, should we be concerned about that? Should we be concerned that this is an opportunity for Republicans to swoop in and potentially use this as momentum to, uh, you know, gain support for their other congressional, uh, for congressional candidates across the country for seats that they might win back or the Senate and or the Senate? Possibly. But keep this in mind as well. The Republicans, while we keep saying the Democrats might lose and are likely to lose the Senate and likely to lose Congress, we're saying that because of the track record of Democrats. We're not saying that because the Republicans are fundamentally in a stronger position. Now, they have gerrymandered the hell out of this country. They are passing sweeping voter suppression laws, repression across the country in Texas just yesterday all targeted against people of color. Of course, this is their strategy. But they're also leaning on Donald Trump and culture wars first. These aren't the culture wars of the 80s. These aren't the culture wars that tap into a country that is fundamentally conservative. These are the culture wars that are preying on a sliver of different populations across the country because the way that Republicans are winning right now is by 
a hair. But one hair here, one hair here, one hair here. And suddenly the Republicans have taken back the Senate. They've taken back Congress. Joe Biden, of course, won by 40,000 votes in one state, because that is the way that electoralism works in this country. And that is why electoralism matters. And that is why it's important for us as well as progressives to keep running people, because the more people that we have running and winning those primaries, the more likely we are going to win the generals against the fascists, because we have the right strategy. We talk about things like income inequality. We talk about things that are overwhelmingly popular, like Medicare for all. We talk about bail reform. We talk about ending cash bail. We talk about issues that affect the communities in which our congressional members are supposed to represent. And this is something that Donald Trump has lost his grip on. So I, I, on one hand, I think they're slipping. Republicans are flailing and they're worried that they're not going to win. And so that's why they're sending out Donald Trump to hit Joe Biden when he's down. To attack him and hope that that momentum will build and that every single right wing congressional candidate across the country will run on that message. That's what they're trying to do. Now, let's play this clip of Joe Biden. You know, as well as I do, that a former president made a deal with the Taliban that he would get all American forces out of Afghanistan by May 1. In return, the commitment was made, and that was a year before. In return, he was given a commitment that the Taliban would continue to attack others, but would not attack any American forces. Remember that? I'm, I'm being serious. I, no, I, I'm asking you a question. Because before... No, 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 wait a minute. I'm asking you a question. Is that, is that accurate, the best of you or not? What? This has been labeled by the Biden administration, administration as the toughest day, the day that they pulled out of Afghanistan, the toughest day of his presidency. Uh, that was Joe Biden growing incredibly frustrated, growing incredibly frustrated with a Fox News reporter who didn't seem to understand that just a year ago, President, former President Trump was the one who initiated these talks. Um, Peter Ducey, the Fox News reporter, uh, pushed back. And of, and of course, uh, President Biden was frustrated because the fundamentals of what was going on are being lost in the ether. Everyone's got a hot take on Afghanistan right now, but very few have a hot understanding of really what's happened on the ground, what happened a year ago in those negotiations, who the Taliban is today versus who they were 20 years ago, who they were 10 years ago, understanding that the relationship between the Taliban, Al-Qaeda network, and ISIS. So on one hand, you have uh, <laughs> you have President Trump saying that he eliminated ISIS 100%. On the other hand, while well, the information's not fully in yet, you had attacks at the Kabul airport in which at least 170 people died as of this moment that were at least ISIS was claiming that they were going to attack and that there was a risk because ISIS wanted to swoop in and gain ground without the U.S. troops there 
to, you know, supposedly keep things in order. But Trump wants to gain credit for eliminating ISIS, which, of course, never happened, but doesn't want to take credit for pulling out of Afghanistan, even though he was running on that just a year ago. Simultaneously, you have Joe Biden, who, of course, could have handled this much better. The reason why this is a mess is because fundamentally, I think we as a society in the media are not honest about foreign policy. So few of us have even been abroad, let alone how many people who have hot takes on foreign policy have actually worked on the ground in a place where conflict exists. This didn't used to be the case. This is not some like flippant comment I'm making right now. This did not used to be the case. It is complicated. It is messy. It is multidimensional. And sometimes there's no right answer. There's just the lesser wrong answer. And this has always tested presidents. But in the past, you have not had a president running around, a former president running around, wreaking havoc on a country, all for the potential of winning back the Senate. At what length will they go? They've won it all. They've won their tax breaks. Businesses stayed open in Florida. Businesses stayed open in Texas. What do you want? What more power can you get? Do you just want to privatize the entire country? We are literally drowning and on fire. What else do you want? You have created a monster in which people literally think they're being injected with microchips with the vaccine, and it is literally sending us into a death spiral. We are going to be in this pandemic for so long because you've created a monster because you want to maintain your political control and your short-term financial gains. I am all about criticizing Joe Biden's foreign policy and the mistakes he made and the right decisions he made. But it is not black or white. But simultaneously, we should also be talking about how the right wing is literally holding us hostage. They're determining the conversation. If you, don't, if you don't believe me, do this. Watch Fox News in the morning and see what Fox and Friends starts the day off with. And then go check by the end of the day or the next day or by Friday. On Monday morning, watch Fox News. See what the narrative is. On Wednesday, I want you to go to the Daily Beast and see what the narrative is there. On Friday, why don't you turn on CNN or MSNBC and see what the narrative is there? I will bet you nine out of 10 cases, Fox News is determining the message. And it's not coming from Fox. It's coming from Breitbart. It's coming from all of the Daily Caller, all of the different websites that they put out there and they give to their guests, and they give to their hosts, and they say, comment on this. And the next thing you know, a week later, it's being debated on MSNBC. This is the problem. We are letting them set the terms. It shouldn't be about, oh, it was Donald Trump's idea to get out of Afghanistan. Guess what? Guess what? You say that, Joe Biden? You say that, Joe Biden? And those Trump voters are not going to vote for you. You should say it was my idea. Trump was lying. He was using it as a gimmick. See, he doesn't want to own it now. Because the reality is most Americans did want to get out of Afghanistan. And those are the approval ratings you need to look for. That's what you need to follow. 
And then you need to say, now let's have a smart conversation. The reason why it was hard and it's brutal is because Donald Trump and his administration made it so hard to bring in refugees. That's where you're getting hit with your approval ratings being low right now, Joe Biden. It's not because you got out of Afghanistan. Don't distance yourself from that. That is what people want to hear. And that's what they believe in. It's how you're handling it. That is why your approval ratings are down. Here's just one little tip. Don't do this on camera. All right, we have a great show today. We'll be right back after this short little break. Welcome back to TNS. I'm excited to have Rose Adams join us. She is a politics fellow at The Intercept, and she was uh, previously covering New York City politics, our favorite, at the Brooklyn at, at, with the Brooklyn paper, excuse me, and AM New York. And she has a piece out in The Intercept right now titled "United Healthcare's Guided Yale Wait Gu- United Healthcare Guided Yale's Groundbreaking Surprise Billing Study." Rose, this is so interesting. Um, thank you for joining us. And I'm just curious, I guess before we even start like with what surprise billing is, mm-hmm. how did you find out about this? Where, where did this come from? We So we actually uh, at The Intercept got an email from someone who told us about this case, that there's this case going on in Nevada between uh, this healthcare staffing company that staffs emergency departments and... Uh, United Healthcare, the biggest health insurer in the country. And so it was, you know, there's this ongoing feud between the two groups. They're always at odds with each other over like how much to pay and reimburse physicians. And so this, this one case was part and parcel of that entire feud. It was basically, we don't even have to get into it, but it basically was how it was these providers, uh, these staffing companies suing United Health for what they say is under reimbursing and faking numbers to underpay providers. So, you know, this is part of a years long battle that they just spend all, t- all their time in court. And if you're wondering where your premiums go, I think that this is <laughs> one of the major, uh, one of the major ways they're used is just constant litigation. Um, so uh, part of this case though, was this whole issue about this really important Yale study. And that's how, uh, how, that's how it kind of came to light. And it was only through uh, discovery and, you know, parts of uh, parts of getting, you know, the background for the case that Yale uh, and the and United Healthcare had to give up these e- internal emails and internal documents that uh, talked about what the study, where, where it came from and, you know, with sort of the behind the scenes of it. So that's that's the background as we got we were made aware of this case and people were like, you should keep an eye out on these documents. They might be kind of uh, interesting when they're revealed and unsealed by the court. What's interesting to me about this is, and I guess I'm not really clear. Did they push for this study to essentially create evidence for their court case or what came first? The, I, I would say no. I think the study, the study was, uh, it started off in like 2016. It's, it's been, a, it's a several years old at this point. Um, and this, you know, it, the other thing that I really have to establish off the bat is that these provider groups, these are staffing companies, this, the one that I talked to and spoke to, you know, is suing United Health is um, named Team Health. And they are owned by private equity. They are not, there's no good guys in this equation. I mean, they are, 
equally at fault for, you know, trying to make as much money as possible for their bottom line. And so is United Health. It's a for-profit insurance company. They have, you know, they're trying to make the biggest profit possible. So that's, that's a really baseline important thing to understand about this whole story is that there's no real victim here other than patients who have to pay a ton of money for healthcare. But, um, Basically, yeah, it's it's sort of this case, I would say, exists sort of separately from the study. It's just I think they use the team health wants to use this sort of study to say, look at how United manipulates uh, academic data to its own liking. And it is able to manipulate the narrative by being able to work with academics in this way and have a friendly relationship. So, you know, and, and there's definitely elements of truth in that. So even though you can't really fully trust team health in most regards, they still you know, they still each each has their own points, both Team Health and United Health. So, okay, let's 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 just start off with the basics here. Um, United Health, very very large, obviously you said the largest uh, healthcare provider in the country. Had how were they able to? Oh, I don't know what I mean. How were they able to like basically convince Yale to do the study? Did they? pay for it? I mean, you hear these signs. Okay. So, so like in climate, in the climate world, you hear about how like oil and gas will, you know, behind the scenes through foundations and grants, whatever fund, uh, departments that are suddenly providing these studies that prove that fracking is like not that bad. You know, what do you know? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So is this a similar model? I mean, it's a little different. That's like, that's a good sort of distinction. There is this entrenched relationship between academia and, uh, the medicine world, whether that's big pharma or the insurance companies. And it's it's a relatively recent history. It wasn't always like this. Um, you know, I think people say back to like around the 80s, that's when this kind of influence, this big pharma, this insurance influence really started to permeate in kind of a, an alarming way, academic circles. But it doesn't work in the same overtly uh, kind of misleading way as other as other uh, industries, especially not when it comes to insurance, where uh, it's usually there's not a lot of I don't think there's usually payment involved. There wasn't obviously any payment in in this case. But uh, what it is, is that because insurance companies have all this health related data about cost, I mean, they own all this proprietary data. If anyone wants to do research in health economics, they have to work with these insurance companies to get the data. And the insurance companies, they don't have to give over anything. They're under no obligation to give over their information for uh, any academic study. It's completely private. So in order for them to do that, they would have to like where the study is going and they would have to approve of it. And they would have to sign a data use agreement that binds the researchers into you know, whatever their conditions are, whether that's you know suggesting edits to the study, signing off on it. You know, They want to make sure... And also every... They'll only give the data if they know exactly how the researchers are going to use it down to their, you know, methodology of how they're looking at it. Um, And so, you know, it's not that the insurance companies are going to the researchers and it's that like you do this, but because of the nature of how the data is stored, it's, it's sort of uh, that power imbalance is, is innate and sort of in all research about healthcare. Were you able to get any feedback from Yale or other researchers about how this might influence their work? Yeah, I think that was what was really interesting is every researcher I spoke to, I spoke to a ton of different health economics researchers across the country. And, you know, I think even and even the people at Yale, I mean, there seems to be a consensus that it's no one wants the insurance companies to have this much power. And, you know, data use agreements, 
researchers want to be as independent as possible. And I really do think that, you know, this is not something that they're doing out of really trying to be evil, but they're just sort of have their hands tied a little bit because they want to do this research. And so they have to abide by these agreements. Um, and so I think there's a lot of criticism and it's, it's a good ongoing debate, especially when it gets sort of an outside look from people that aren't in this world now sort of scrutinizing how this works. And, you know, it's good for people to be held accountable in this way. Cause I think once you get used to it, and that's sort of what I was seeing, this becomes normal practice. It's like you, researchers lose sight of the fact that maybe these data use agreements are kind of, you know, conflicts of interest. Maybe these are sketchy ways to go about doing research, but they, you know, they're not thrilled with them, but they kind of get used to it. So uh, it's kind of, you know, part of the game. So I think there's criticism of these agreements, but they're so entrenched that, you know, I think the really it's, it's a bigger problem that we'd have to rethink how this data is publicized, maybe make a public the government should make all this data public or something. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the the arguments that people who are on the center left who are not supportive of Medicare for all, they sometimes make is, well, it's just such a complicated system. You can't just aggressively overhaul it overnight because not only is healthcare the largest job provider in the country, but you have all these independent industries that are just you know, like combative with each other. I mean, both of these industries are against Medicare for all, but at, you know, at war with each other. And, and so when you start to get into like the weeds, you, you, it's easier to understand that argument, which, you know, personally I'm fully against, but um, you start to get a, a, a better look at like, this is a chaotic world and it's every or, you know, company for itself. And of course you have finance, as you mentioned, involved in, in different arms of, of healthcare. Um, did you get a sense of, from anybody about, I mean, releasing the data publicly would be fascinating if that's, if that's an area where the federal government could, you know, intervene in the meantime, it's a brilliant way to, to, you know, create more transparency and understanding of, of how complicated this is. But did you get a sense of, um, how like finance, I mean, did they, did anybody at any of these private equity firms respond about their role in, in all of this? Well, I guess that would be a kind of follow-up that I'd be interested to do because I, I focus mostly on this article. Uh, I focus this article mostly on Yale and um, and United Health. It was just such a complicated study and the background of exactly what happened was uh, just required a lot of, you know, explanation. But, and obviously I have to mention that this pri- these private equity-backed firms have their own problems and are um, also controversial, but I think it, that warrants its own sort of deep dive is how, you know, how it is that private equity is equity has merged into this, you know, controlling most of the emergency departments in the country to make them profitable. Also the fact that a lot of hospitals, you know, work with basically outsource their entire emergency department care to these companies because they can't run them themselves because they're, it's just too much. It's too much money. It's hard to make money from them, from it as a, big hospital. These hospitals are stretched thin and just, you know, not managed well. They're just too big. Uh, So there's all kinds of problems on all sides. And that has really led to uh, these, these private equity firms coming in and swooping, swooping it and raising prices. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's just money making and it's really hard to see. And I think it's actually, you see how complicated it is, but it is actually a really, great uh advertisement or for medicare for all because you see how healthcare is completely controlled for money people's lives are just you know used to make a bigger bottom line 
I mean, anybody who has undergone a procedure at a hospital or has seen their loved ones in the hospital um, and gets those bills. I mean, I, I remember right a few years ago, my mother was going through her parents' bills and was like, what? She was fighting with them, <laughs> literally line by line. Like, what is this thing? And they didn't know. Right. Literally, the billing department didn't even know what the thing was. And then sometimes they would find out it was like this little plastic thing that like was sitting on the, it had no role in the, and it was, you know, $400 or whatever it was. Um, so there's this act called the No Surprises Act. Can mm-hmm. you explain what that, that, bill does and you know if it's actually potentially going to make a difference for sure so the no the, the no surprises act is this act that was passed by congress they're kind of working out this implementation now um but and it was largely influenced by the cl study that blew the top off surprise billing and revealed how prevalent and terrible it was uh, rightfully so and just to give a quick briefer on surprise billing. So basically it's something a lot of people have experienced. Like you go to an in-network hospital uh, and you think everyone that treats you is going to be in your network. But then actually physicians that work there don't have to be in the hospital's network. So a lot of anesthesiologists remained out of network, even though you're in an in-network hospital and you get, you're not going to ask. And you, I don't think you even can a lot of the time. Like our, when an anesthesiologist comes before surgery, like, can, are you in my network? And so then you'll get a huge bill after the whole procedure for, you know, after your stay, that is, you know, $800 for anesthesiology, even though it's supposed to be in network, it's an out of network bill. So you have to pay it out of pocket. And you're like, but I went to an in-network hospital. Well, that's surprise billing. That's what happens. It happens to, you know, millions of people over many years in America. And this, and this um, study kind of looked at why, you know, the prevalence of it, why it happened. And it, determined that this was a, a practice that these staffing companies did on purpose to make as much money as possible. So they, you know, just to, they weren't making enough money from the insurance companies. So they want to, you know, bargain better prices with them by using surprise billing as a, as a negotiating tool. So that is what influenced this uh, No Surprises Act legislation that it's great. I think it's really, it's really good. They are basically banning that practice. People can't, or hospitals cannot balance bill or surprise bill is really the same thing. Uh, patients for, for these things, they have to negotiate and between the um, insurance company and the provider. They, they The patient can't be caught in the middle, essentially. So, you know, there's a lot of kind of nitty gritty decisions of how exactly the negotiation is going to be laid out. And that's the kind of thing that's being worked out now on a, on a congressional level. But um, that's, that's, it is a really good legislation. A lot of states already have this kind of thing already, um, but some states don't. And so this really covers everybody. And um, yeah, it's pretty hands down important to keep patients out of these, these debates. I mean, cause they're exhausting and that's part of it is that they exhaust you to death. Even if you were to fight over them, you know, they're, totally. they're it's like being on hold with their cable company. Right. <laughs> they're like, right. you give up. You're like, I am fine. I'll pay the $40. It's fine. <laughs> Right. Same exactly. Thing. And no one, no one even knows the, you know, the ways in which you're supposed, you know, one's taught how you're supposed to fight these insurance companies. And like you said, it's so complicated. It's not like there's ever a playbook that you're given to how to fight these insane bills that you maybe shouldn't have to pay. Indeed. Yeah. So, um, I, the, the part of the, this article that really my eyes lit up was this New York times part. And mm-hmm. It's not that I'm surprised. This is this is how journalism works in in forever. Uh, but the, the New York Times seemed to have a special relationship uh, regarding this study. Can you explain like how this went down and and also how common it is? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 
that sort of gets back to this relationship between these, all these fields of, you know, media, academia, and these big companies. There's so much more overlap than I was aware of before. And I think it's kind of comparable to what we've seen in the coverage of Afghanistan, actually, where there's like this real cycle of people who, you know, need jobs after they've worked in the military. In this case, you could kind of say that for medicine, they need jobs after working in medicine or they want to make more money. So in the case of Afghanistan, though, maybe they'll go work for a defense contractor and make a ton of money. In the case of medicine, maybe they'll go work for big pharma and make a ton of money or an insurance company. And so there's a lot of cross-pollination between all these different fields that you think should be separate. Um, and that influences media too. And so um, they they have all these established connections, these relationships with these with reporters, and they kind of go beyond sometimes what you'd expect. And that's, I mean, I can't say for sure that's what happened in this case. I mean, I know that uh, that reporter had re- reported on other things that the researchers that Cooper had written before. And so there was an established relationship there. They clearly worked together for months um, to report this out. So there clearly is, you know, a, a relationship there. And I think, I think the other thing that's influenced the times, the times uh, reporting of it is just the fact that, um, that they're, I think they're desensitized to some of this stuff too. They're desensitized to how data use agreements can be misleading and how they shield the insurance companies and the data providers from any blame. Uh, and they're written on those terms. And I think by, if you cover healthcare for a long time, I could see how you'd be desensitized to the, how bad that is. And you just accept it and you're like, oh, okay, the data use providers doesn't want to be named in the article. I won't name them. That's how it works. So uh, I think there's just a lot of factors at play there that kind of, you know, make it so that the coverage isn't as biting as it could be. It's, it's, you know, yeah, I'm not surprised by it. Um, yeah. But, you know, some of this is also like these industries will have dinners and they'll invite reporters. And that's not in- inherently bad. It's obviously they want to get to know and, and build those relationships, but we're all human. And at the end of the day, our bias is often a reflection of, of is reflected in the community and, and the people that we, you know, are around or are or ask questions of if you're a reporter. Um, you know, it's access journalism. Yeah. Right. Super interesting article, Rose. Um, you know, <laughs> kudos to you. I mean, navigating the healthcare world, I'm always when someone does it well, I'm like, okay, this is good because we can illustrate just like how this works internally, but it's 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 very hard to to wrap our heads around. I think it's it's so it's, hard. It's, yeah, exactly. Um, Rose Adams, thank you so much. You can go check out her article in the intercept. It is out there. We have it linked below um on YouTube and uh, it's titled just for anybody who wants to look it up right now. United Healthcare's uh, guided guided Yale's groundbreaking surprise billing study it is in the Intercept. On uh, it's two weeks ago you published it, I think. Yeah, because we we tried this before and then we had a little bit of a technical issue. So, but thanks for joining us. Always Rose. relevant. Thank you. Thanks Always so relevant. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned company, a farmer-owned company that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm in Vermont to your door. They have all types of products. Uh, They have gummies and salves and tinctures and lotions and coffees and just pure hemp. And it's all designed to help you out with your aches and pains and your stress I say farmer owned because they're not owned by Monsanto and some big company. Uh, They're a small company 
that is, they flipped actually a dairy farm, the Ben and Jerry's, like the original Ben and Jerry's dairy farm in Vermont. And they decided to diversify it and grow premium hemp. But on top of all that, they are a majority owned, employee majority owned company. And they give their base salary, their minimum wage is $15 an hour. Um, and when you're supporting Sunset Lake CBD, you are actually supporting uh, rural economies and creating very meaningful employment in that community as well. We know that our government's doing nothing to protect our farmers. And so we've had to create this ecosystem and have sustainable agriculture out there. Um, it's a great, great, great company. We work with them. We love them. We have a pretty close relationship. They send little notes uh, <laughs> with their goods. It's always sweet to my mom as well, because my mom loves Sunset Lake CBD. And on top of all that, they support independent media, which is hard because, you know, the right wing, like the big Koch brothers and Heritage Foundation, they all support the Ben Shapiro's of the world. And we have sustainable agriculture doing that. How amazing is it? Sunset Lake CBD supports not just our show, the Nomihi show, but the Majority Report and the David Pakman show. I love their products. They're always sending me new stuff that I get to try. The dog biscuits are great. Our dog, uh, Bijou, our fluffy little, how old is he now? 14 years old dog. He has had a lot of anxiety over the last few weeks, months, because the pandemic got him very used to being at home with humans 24 seven. And then humans started to leave and go places and get in their car and he'd be left alone. And he just sits by the door and he mopes. And on top of it, my mom spoils him to death. And it's really has, you know, she just basically treats him like she, she, she spoils him. And, um, as a result, there's been a lot of anxiety because when you spoil your dog, they get anxiety when you leave. So we have been giving Bijou the biscuits, the peanut butter, oat flour, and pumpkin biscuits. You can eat them too. You could sit there. And I think that actually defeats the purpose. But if you if you are that close to your dog, probably why they have anxiety, uh, you could sit there and eat those biscuits with your dog. Be a bonding experience. Just like watch a movie, sit on the couch, eat the biscuits together. Be fun. Yeah. Anyways, I love Sunset Lake CBD. I use a ton of their products. I use their tinctures uh, to help me sleep a full night's sleep. I did it last night. I woke up in the middle of the night. I put some tincture in my water and then I slept until I woke up in the morning uh, until the noise started. Uh, it didn't knock me out that well. <laughs> there was some drilling. There was some loud drilling uh, next to my or above me. I have no idea where it was coming from, but I love Sunset Lake CBD for their tinctures, helping me sleep. And of course the aches and pains. Um, I smoke the hemp when I get a migraine. I'll take a little tincture when I get a migraine. I love the gummies. Go check it out. There's tons of products. Very good product. High quality CBD. It's not like your average CBD. CBD. It shocked me. Go to sunsetlakecbd.com. Type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, and you'll get 20% off of your entire order. Go to sunsetlakecbd.com. Type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, and you will get 20% off of your entire order. We'll be right back with Esperanza Fonseca and Jamie Peck. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. It is Fem Friday. Esperanza Fonseca is here. Uh, she is an affirm, a member of a firm, the organization, um, and a labor and policy organizer. Is a transnational a firm is a transnational feminist organization. Just make that very clear. And JB Peck is, of course, the co-host of the Antipoda uh, podcast and uh, so many other things. But what else? You have a new one too, right? Everybody loves communism. The Everybody Leftist Theory Podcast, where we do the reading so you don't have to. 
I am writing that in there because I keep writing it in and then it goes away. Everybody loves, what are you reading right now? Uh, we're reading State and Revolution by our boy <laughs> Lennon. Uh, we're currently on chapter two. We're going to do the whole thing and it's a lot of fun. Wasn't it the anniversary of his death like a few days ago or am I completely imagining that? Oh God, I'm a bad communist for not knowing this. I don't feel like you need to memorize everybody's birth dates and deaths. You know, what, like, you know what, what I would rather have people remember than my birthday after I die is the stuff that I wrote. So I think I'm yes. doing all right. Yes. That, you know, I sometimes feel this guilt about doing on-air stuff because it take, pulls away time from writing. At the end, whatever, the earth's going to blow up in like five years, so it doesn't even matter. <laughs> no one's going to read any of our stuff. They're not going to be able to open up our computers. They're not going to be able to, the paper's all going to be on fire. We're done. Yeah. That's why I have, that's why I'm writing a book. That's why. So in, in generations, so there real. will be books laying around after the internet explodes that will have my thoughts in them. That's it. Maybe we can crowdsource somebody to transcribe all of our shows just so it's there. <laughs> I'm sure there's way more interesting things to read than our transcriptions. All right. Um, let's start off with this OnlyFans. I'm just catching up on OnlyFans. I have a little bit of a time difference here. Uh, so OnlyFans, the site had been called out because they banned they plan to ban pornography from its service. Uh, it's a UK content creator subscription site. And they announced the change, citing the need to comply with policies of banking partners. That was left out. Uh, they didn't say which banking partners. And it has something to do with like payment processing. But citing this like rule and this compliance, they immediately, a week later, decided that they're going to reverse their decision because of public outrage. I mean, what I love about this is it's the excuse they made in the beginning was sort of like a legalese excuse. And then once it became a public uh, disaster, a, a public, um, you know, the, the public basically called them out like, this is why your site exists. Then immediately like the legal thing didn't matter anymore and the banks didn't matter, which I feel is kind of, an, it's sort of like a metaphor for everything that's happening right now in this pandemic. Like, oh, you know, we don't have enough money, but we have it now. Okay, fine, fine. We have it. You got us. Jamie, what are your thoughts? You're nodding your head. Yeah. I mean, that's totally true. This is unfortunately a widespread problem uh, that sex workers have to deal with. Um, the difficulty processing payments or remaining on various platforms that they use to help themselves make a living. Um, they get chased around like this and they always end up uh, getting the short end of the stick. But I mean, I think the fact that this kind of outcry actually worked this time is evidence that sex workers are becoming a lot more of a constituency with political power, which uh, which is a good thing. Obviously, um, this this ban would have cost sex workers lives. It would have pushed people onto the streets doing more dangerous forms of sex work when OnlyFans was a way for people to be safer during the pandemic and to take more control over their own work that they were creating. So um, I, I, I'm glad to see this reversal. And I think... Uh, yeah, it's a sign of good things tentatively to come. Esperanza, what are your thoughts on this? I know this is something uh, near to your heart. Yeah, so uh, the first thing I want to say is that let's be clear on what OnlyFans is. It's one of the most predatory and parasitic uh, 
companies that sits at the intersection of the gig economy, which is one of the most exploitative and precarious places for any worker to be, and the sex industry, which is one of the most exploitative and dangerous places for a specifically woman to be. Um, OnlyFans saw a 71% increase in signups during COVID, where we saw a dual public health and economic crisis hit us, where women in particular saw the highest job losses, which we still have not recovered from. And so masses of people, especially women, uh, were forced and pushed into OnlyFans, uh, where they were inundated with capitalist media telling them, oh, you could buy a house. Uh, the OnlyFans executives themselves had uh, embedded this sort of multi-level marketing pyramid scheme in it, uh, where you earn more if you recruit more people onto the site. Um, and so a lot of people were lied to about what OnlyFans but actually do for them. Uh, the average earnings on OnlyFans was actually around $145 a month. Uh, the market was saturated. Uh, the reality is, is that most people on OnlyFans were not making enough to support them. Um, and in terms of control and ownership over their content, OnlyFans, and specifically the pimp-in-chief Tim Stokely, was taking 20% of everything that they earned. Uh, and when you make an average of 145 a month, uh, that's a lot. Um, so uh, I think what really happened here, I actually don't think that it had anything to do with the backlash. Uh, companies don't move because people complain on Twitter. They move when you threaten their bottom line, which is their money, their profit. So what we saw is that an organized group of people decided to make uh, the fact that there was non-consensual content, that there was uh, minor content on OnlyFans, enough of a problem that it became a liability that threatened these payment processors. Um, and they were able to do that in an effective way. And I know some people say, oh, this isn't true. There was no underage content. That's a lie. Uh, an investigation by the BBC revealed that OnlyFans was lenient with illegal content, including the use of minors in pornography, that accounts would not get deleted when this illegal content was found, um, as well as uh, that there is other kinds of abuse being sold on the site, such as bestiality, such as incest, such as the exploitation of homeless individuals. Um, and so essentially what we saw is that OnlyFans did not want to comply with the new regulations, likely because it would have been too costly. And so instead they decided to do away with all of it. But of course, given that, you know, during the pandemic, when women were pushed into the online sex industry and Tim Stokely walked away with millions and billions of dollars, he doesn't want that money to leave. So they found a way around it and so, they get to market themselves as inclusive while doing so. So this is interesting. I mean, I'm really glad that you bring up all these points. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. And I think some of the points that you're making are some of the same things, just be very clear that a lot of folks, you know, minus the, the exploitation through sex and, and um, children, but it's, it's, it's the business model of these platforms today. Um, you know, in, and it's the business model of, of pyramid schemes. I mean, if you're early in on something, you might have a shot, but then once you're, you're part of the ecosystem, it's very hard. It's the old pyramid model, obviously exacerbated with um, the way that things will go viral uh, and the algorithms work. But with this being said, it, it, 
I don't understand if this wasn't about, this is about the bottom line, which I agree with you. And the outrage, I think, affected the bottom line. But if this is about the bottom line, what were they planning on doing? Just pivoting and becoming like a YouTube? Like what was, if they weren't going to have any, any sex online whatsoever, anything sexualized, then what was the site? I can't imagine their investors would have been happy. Well, you know, they actually had a new site or feature that they were setting up called OnlyFans TVs. But also, as you know, once you have capital, you can move that capital around and invest in different things. So in terms of, you know, if they were able to continue making their money, of course, because when you have capital, you can move it other places. I I think it's possible they balked when they realized, oh, shit, that was our entire business model. That's all anyone knows about us. Uh, You know, the site might have been gentrified by a few big names like Caroline Calloway or like influencers who are going to post like vaguely sexy photos. Um, But at the end of the day, their business model was porn and it was a place that sex workers used for that. So I don't know. I think it was a combination of public opinion pressure, perhaps, because I I saw a lot of articles coming out in the last week or so where sex worker led organizations were like, this is bad. This is going to kill us. This is going to kill our people. Um, but more so than that, probably the money. I think it was a combination of things. I mean, is this one of those situations? So the arguments, at least that I was reading briefly on this was, this is going to kill our people. And it's a way for, it's sort of like leaning into an individualism, right? You can go on here, you can make your own money for yourself. You don't have to, uh, be physically on the streets, but simultaneously, it's not a better model. I mean, as Franz, like, what is that how you're seeing this debate kind of rage move forward? Or, well, I think that a lot of people buy into the lie of the promise of technology that it is somehow going to uh, erase the existing social relations in society. So, like, we saw the idea of the internet, for example, uh, you know, changing all of society did it in a way, yes, but it didn't change the fundamental exploitative social relations. I mean, look at, for example, how much of a mass propaganda tool it's used to influence public opinion, um, how, you know, it, it didn't escape the economic system that we live under. Uh, Backpage was supposed to uh, bring an end to pimping and give people independence. Did it No, it didn't. People were still being pimped out on Backpage. People were still being trafficked on Backpage. And Backpage didn't do anything to reduce the violence against those of us who didn't have a pimp or a trafficker. And in the same way, we're seeing that same failed, tired, old promise being said about OnlyFans, that it's supposed to give people this sort of independence and freedom from violence. That is simply not true. I had a friend who was assaulted and raped while making an OnlyFans video. I mean, these pressures, these problems still exist, and you're not going to be able to run around them with a new shiny piece of software or technology. Just so, just real quick, Jamie, um, just so people can understand. So when someone's being exploited on OnlyFans, is, is it like in a studio? How is this kind of in a granular I mean, way? Like, how's it set up? I mean, one thing that a lot of sex workers like about OnlyFans is that you can create your own material. Um, you don't have to just show up and do a bit in someone else's movie. And you have a lot more control over who your partners are, 
over what kind of acts you're performing. Um, and you keep a whole lot more of the money than you do in other situations. Um, I, I would never argue that sex work is not exploitative because all work under capitalism is exploitative. Uh, but as long as we have capitalism, um, people have to be able to make a living doing the kind of work that they have chosen or for whatever reason is preferable over other kinds of work. And um, we're not going to see eye to eye on this. Sorry. Like, I think some people think having sex for any other reason that a very narrow kind of desire is inherently soul destroying in a way that other kinds of work are not in the way that cleaning rich people's toilets is not. And I disagree. Like, I, I also want to abolish sex work, but we got to do it when we abolish all wage labor uh, as, as part of a social transformation. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think that while all work under capitalism is exploitative and coercive, when sex is exploitative and coercive, we have a name for that. And that name is rape. It's sexual violence. And as someone who has been through the sex industry, as someone who every week sits down with women. I mean, so have I. Sorry. Huh? So I, I also used to do a kind of sex work and I'm friends with a lot of sex workers. So yeah, I am also I, speaking from experience. Yeah. So, you know, as someone who, who actually like sits down every week, not just to have friendly conversations with people, but actually to interview them on their experience, to study this. What I found is that the majority of people and the data backs this up are actually not in the sex industry by choice. I mean, when you take 99% of someone's options away and they're left with one, uh, which is prostitute yourself or starve, that's not really a choice. And so I think that what our job should be as whether you call yourself a progressive or a leftist or whatever, uh, we should be combating rape culture, not uh, trying to twist theory in order to justify it. And when it comes to OnlyFans, I think that uh, it's it's sort of clear that the uh, blame has been laid on everyone else except for the CEO and the executives who are walking away with billions in profits while um, a majority of people, mostly women, uh, have been pushed into the online sex industry because they've been dispossessed from their jobs um, and from the employment that they actually initially chose. What about all the sex worker led organizations who are saying this is going to be really bad for us? Are they just wrong? Uh, do you mean the ones led by pimps, like uh, the ones led by convicted pimp Maxine Dugan or Alejandra Gill or Douglas Fox? Or are we talking about the ones funded by the same people that fund the National Endowment for Democracy that conduct regime change all over the world? Wait, so when you say these, there's organizations that are being funded by pimps, can you just be like, which organizations these are? Are, are there part of them? Yeah. This is so, new for me. I'm not, so, I'm not aware of it. And there's so, a fine uh, line, by the way, between who's a quote unquote pimp and who's a worker. If sex workers work together in a group for safety, if they do bookings for one another, they are charged with quote unquote pimping. So that's right. not a word that the people that I know who are sex worker activists like to use. Yeah. So when I say organizations run by pimps, I'm talking about let's go back to the very first so-called prostitute union, Coyote, which was initially funded by the sex industry, initially funded by Playboy. You see all over the world when these organizations began popping up, pimps 
were actually, Mm -hmm. and traffickers were actually involved in the creation and the leadership of these organizations. Whether you're talking about Douglas Fox, who ran one of the biggest prostitution rings in the UK and represented himself as a sex worker and ran a sex worker organization, whether you're talking about Alejandra Gil in Mexico, who helped run uh, a national, or I believe international sex worker project and was herself accused uh, of trafficking by women that she was pimping out. Um, And then her organization called those women liars so much for Believe Women, Um, or whether you're talking about here in the US where we have a woman named Maxine Dugan, who was involved in constructing Amnesty International's policy around uh, decriminalizing pimping, brothel owning, and sex buying. And she herself is a convicted pimp who would steal up to 60% of the earnings of the women that she would pimp out. Was this before she joined the organization uh, with Amnesty? Yeah, it's before. And so while we could talk about, you know, if two women in prostitution are together, should they be convicted of pimping? Obviously not. But we're talking about actual pimps, like actual people that are profiting by prostituting others. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think we have to be very clear about what kind of organizations these are, because a lot of these organizations not only are pimp led, but they're funded by imperialists, literal imperialists who fund the NED and want to push an agenda on people who are telling them you're experiencing violence in the sex trade at the hands of pimps and sex buyers. Well, let's expand the rights of pimps and sex buyers and then maybe the violence against you will stop. So I have a question for you, um, for either of you. Okay, so so somebody's, uh, their, 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 their life work, or at least in their adult life, has been in, in sex work, right? Without an OnlyFans, if there's very few options, if it's it's continuing to work under a pimp in your community and her whoever's community, right, or going on OnlyFans or some other being part of some organization, I mean they're very limited. I mean, like I have like one skill in my life. If I don't have the ability to do that skill, talk about politics or ask questions about politics, I'm done, right? Like it's similar. It's how most people are. So if if where where do they go? What are the options? Either one of you, you know, jump well, in. Yeah, I mean, I'm is, sorry. Is, uh, there, sorry, let me just real quick. The reality is, is that there are no options. And that goes to show you the absolute necessity of prioritizing the right to exit. The right to exit is the most denied right to women, whether it is the right to exit an abusive relationship, uh, an exploitative relationship, or the right to exit the sex trade. A study of prostitutes in over nine countries revealed that nearly 90% of them wanted to exit but couldn't because they did not have the resources. People are trapped in sexual service, trapped in prostitution, and they need the right to exit. And that includes housing, food, education, job programs, et cetera. And until we guarantee that, we are maintaining, justifying, and excusing the biggest institution of rape culture that has existed since patriarchy and class society were created. Jamie? I mean, the right to exit should exist for any job that somebody doesn't want to be in, right? We can think of a lot of jobs, uh, no matter what it is. In marriage. Uh, yeah, of course, of course. Um, and this is not a problem with sex work in particular. This is a problem with work in general. This is a problem with our uh, capitalist society. 
Um, It's far more violent. I I mean, the reality, Jamie, is it's like today. Yes, today it is far more violent. Maybe not 100 years ago, but but today sex work is far more violent because most people don't choose to get into sex work. Actually, a lot of people do, and a lot of my friends are sex workers. So I take this. I I actually have a statistically. statistically, Uh, But what I was going to say was a lot of the organizations that provide actual resources for people who don't want to do sex work anymore are sex worker led pro decrim organizations. The rescue industry, as we call it, um, does not often provide these kinds of resources. Or if they do, there are a lot of strings attached. They're religiously motivated. Um, It's not good. So the people who are actually helping each other out more often than not are sex workers who believe in the right to work as well as in the right to exit. You know, I think it's a big problem. um, And I think it's a result of living in such a powerful rape culture where we are not able to admit that sexual violence carries a very particular uh, trauma that other kinds of violence do not carry. I mean, rape is a very particular form of violence. And when we begin to say, oh, well, if you're raped, if you experience sexual violence, I mean, well, well you think yeah. that all sex work is rape, though. Excuse you justify it. Me. Excuse me, I'm talking. When we say, when we try to justify sexual violence, I think we're going down a very dark and dangerous road, right? Like we could talk about how, yes, all jobs are coerced. I mean, it's sort of the all lives matter argument of the sex trade. When we're talking about, for example, violence against black people, and then we say, oh, well, violence happens against all people. Well, right now we're talking about sexual violence and sexual coercion. So why are we trying to shift the focus onto, well, everything's coerced? So let, right. let's just, you let just me, compared let me, what I'm saying based on what sex workers that I know that I care about in my life have been telling me. Just compare that to a racist slogan. So I'm not really sure if this conversation is simple anymore. Hang, hang on a second real quick. Let me, let's just like break it down really simply. I'm for, don't forget our audience is mostly male. So, <laughs> um, if, Okay. So based on the assumption that work is something that we are all forced to get into, right? This is, this is based, I think all of us can agree that work is exploitative, fundamentally capitalism exploitative. And so by that admission, the employer has power over you, whether you are non-unionized in a newsroom like Vice, or you're working in an ecosystem like YouTube, and you're forced to answer to the boss of Google, which basically determines whether or not you can hire people and have healthcare or not in your own little you know, company. Or you choose, you choose or not choose to be a sex worker because there are both scenarios that we're both, we're all very aware of. But if you choose to be a sex worker, like Jamie, you say your friends have, whether they're subconsciously aware of it or consciously aware of the cap, this is what I mean, fundamentally the point is capitalism is patriarchy. So if the patriarchy, the male dominated capitalist world that we're living in is setting the terms of conditions, doesn't it mean that whether they're conscious of it or not, choosing to go down that road is still is still an effect of patriarchy yes. and exploitation. Of course it is. And I, I'm going to take a breath. I am not arguing good debate, that it by the is way, not exploitative. I am not arguing that it cannot be damaging. However, it is true. It is a fact that when laws are made that decriminalize this, uh, that, that criminalize this kind of labor, uh, the people who suffer are always the sex workers. And that is my bottom line. And that is that. what I care about. Sex workers have rights and they have a okay. right to do their work in as safe a way as possible. 
And as long as we have capitalism, uh, people are going to need to make a living. And I, I disagree with the idea that uh, other kinds of work cannot be uh, just as damaging, perhaps in a different way. You know, you're a single mom. You want to you want to make minimum wage uh, scrubbing the toilets of rich people. Or do you want to make um, actually a decent, a decent hourly wage and still have time to take care of your children? And for some people like, yes, it is a choice from among a slew of bad options. Nothing, no kind of labor that we do under capitalism is truly uncoerced unless you're like, you know, one of those PMC people who are like, I love my work so much. Uh, graphic design is my passion. But, you know, the, the bottom line for me is the safety and the dignity of people who I care about and criminalization um, makes that a whole lot harder for them. A hundred percent. I think we all agree in decriminalization, but if that is the case that they're actually are making more money and that I think is, is what's being revealed right now with OnlyFans is that they're not just like somebody joining and creating a YouTube account right now, not making a hundred thousand dollars the way that other people did over, you know, it's, it's not the same anymore. And simultaneously, I mean, I understand where you're coming from, Jamie, like it's, but it still seems like, and forgive my use of this term from the more traditional sense, it's an incremental approach to being able to totally exit. This conversation could have been had six years ago or or more recently in many places around the world about divorce. I mean, div- marriage was a vehicle of capitalism. And yeah, and it, and you know, it honestly still very much Absolutely. is. And I think we need to have a conversation about marriage. Um, and I think in the same way that we want to make marriage free of economic coercion and economic incentive, sex should be made free from economic coercion and economic incentive. Because as long as our bodies are controlled by either the state or the market, which people, especially libertarians, often leave out the coercive forces of the market, they ignore that. As long as our bodies are controlled by either of those two things, we will never be actually free. And I think that when we're talking about coercion, when we're talking about exploitation, capitalism is not an even system. When you look at global capitalism, it is very uneven. And so levels of exploitation, levels of coercion, levels of violence, levels of risk, they exist differently in different industries. And the sex industry is one of the worst places where anyone, especially a woman, can find themselves. Um, And that's why you see that the level of violence, the level of coercion remains the same Uh, No matter what policy model, no matter what legal framework the sex trade exists under. You look at New Zealand, for example, where pimping and sex buying were decriminalized. Uh, Violence and abuse remained as before. There were an increase in male sex buyers on the street. According to a study from 2000 to 2013, stigma against people in the sex trade remain the same. And women have continuously been murdered in New Zealand. So the reality is expanding the legal rights of pimps, brothel owners, and sex buyers is not going to guarantee the safety of women in the sex trade. And we've seen this play out time and time again. So I'm actually glad you brought up marriage because that is another example of something that has the possibility for very coercive dynamics under capitalism and patriarchy and the potential for a lot of abuse. The solution to that is not to abolish marriage, right? Are you working to make marriage illegal? No, you're not. Um, Because it, it would be like 
the tail wagging the dog. You know, these problems are not caused by the institution itself. Um, things like uh, migrant labor, right? Women who pick fruits and vegetables are subject to a whole lot of rape and abuse on the job, as well as uh, domestic workers. Are we trying to make that kind of work illegal? No, we're trying to work on the problems in the industry and give women more economic power so that they can stand up to their bosses when they're being abused. Well, yeah. With that being said, though, I mean, just just with real quick with marriage, maybe that's the case. But but I think fundamentally, for those who decide to get into a marriage, they're doing it for economic reasons. Partly because there is a dynamic, there is a complete discrepancy between how much money a woman is being. I mean, those who are you know at at our, our our our. in our little circles, right? Who are deciding, okay, yes, I don't, it's an outdated institution. It's tied to capitalism, all of these things, but I'm not calling for the abolishment of marriage. But, you know, fundamentally, if we had a more, you know, equal status, we probably would call for the abolishment of marriage. But in our current world, is that something that anyone is trying to do? No. I mean, I I debate it sometimes. Are are you trying to get rid of marriage? Are you trying to get rid of um, agricultural labor? Well, it just I think seems a little a, bit uneven to me. There, there's a few things that need to be said. So um, this is why we're not calling for the abolition of sex. Like we're not calling to abolish sex. We're calling to abolish the sex industry. In the same way, we're not calling to abolish two people deciding they want to live together and love each other and build a family for the rest of their lives. But we are calling to abolish the the male order bride industry, which exports women from the global south. Uh, We are calling to abolish economic coercion, economic incentive and economic pressure, which forces women into marriage. Uh, We are calling to abolish those kinds of industries and economic pressures and incentives around marriage. So we're not trying to abolish sex, but we are trying to abolish the sex industry. Um, And then the last thing I want to say is that uh, this is why it's so important to have a comprehensive approach to dealing with the issues that women face. Because yes, we should abolish the industries which act as these coercive forces and act as these bastions of violence against women, but we should also attack it from the other end by guaranteeing women more economic power and economic freedom so that we don't have to serve men, whether domestically in a marriage or sexually in prostitution, in order to survive. I mean, I, I, I too, I would like to work towards more economic power for women. I think this is the root of all of these problems. Um, and I think there's a way to do it without criminalizing the work of women and, you know, not just women, everyone who's currently working in those kinds of jobs and without making their lives more dangerous. Yeah. And to be clear, I stand for the decriminalization of prostituted people, but I do not stand for the decriminalization of pimps, brothel owners or sex buyers. Well, these laws, the worst effects always come down on the sex workers, though. And we've seen that time and time again. So the only model that really works, I mean, really works. Nothing really works under capitalism. Right. No one's having a great time. But full decriminalization according to all the sex workers that I've ever spoken with, according to the books I've read on the topic, like Revolting Prostitutes, really good one from Verso Books uh, by Molly Smith and Juno Mack. Um, Full decriminalization is the the best way to preserve the safety and the human rights of sex workers. 
Yeah, I mean, personally, I think that's a neoliberal approach, which puts our fates in the hands of the free market. Um, it decreases any regulation on the sex industry. It literally throws us into the whims of the free market. I also think that countries which have decriminalized pimping and sex buying, like I mentioned earlier, and if you look at my writings, which uh, they're linked in my Twitter bio at N-Class Society, you'll see that there's actually evidence that the violence doesn't decrease when you expand the legal rights of the people that profit and benefit from our exploitation. Um, but I think this is a debate that we probably cannot, uh, you know, conclude in 15 minutes, in but I would minutes, encourage yeah. you also to read uh, what I've written as well as, you know, the work of hundreds and hundreds of survivors, as well as people currently in the sex industry that are starting to doubt the neoliberal approach to deregulation of the sex industry. The neoliberal approach that is endorsed by DSA and lots of other socialist organizations. So is the Green New Deal. And the Green New Deal is something that's tied to capital as well. It's an incremental report approach. I mean, there's, I I would say instead of neoliberal, incremental. I mean, I don't see Hillary Clinton advocating for any of these things, but, but it's, I mean, the reality is, is it's like, if we're going to go back to what's serving people materially and they mean it, this, I see both sides of this. I have one thing that I'm pushing for, uh, if I ever run for office and I am not joking, forced vasectomies. Well, I think we can all agree on that. I'm not fucking kidding. (laughs) Everything I'm just sitting here, I'm like, you know what? This would all be solved if we just had four (laughs) spectacles. All right. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to end with a joke. It's not a joke, actually. It's something I've brought up many times on the show, and I'm very close to writing something about it. Uh, Jamie Pack, Esperanza Fonseca, super fascinating conversation. I loved this. Um, I'm ready for round two if we want to prepare for that at any point. And I was not prepared today, today. but I will prepare. I mean, I can also, I feel bad talking about this myself because I don't know as much as a lot of other people do that I've learned everything I know from. So I could recommend you some really, uh, really passionate sex workers on this issue. Perfect. Would love to. Thank you very, very much. Jamie Pack, Esperanza Fonseca, super interesting conversation. Let's do this again very soon. about to watch an exclusive TNS book club interview, abbreviated. If you would like the full interview, you can join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show, where you can subscribe to our book club. We have three levels. And with the level, this is something that most book clubs don't offer. We actually send you the books in partnership with Verso Books. So you have a level where you get three books a month, two books a month, or one book a month. And with that, you get an exclusive conversation with the authors of the book or if the author is not available, maybe not alive anymore, we cultivate a great conversation about the book with folks who have read it, notable folks who have read the book or experts on that subject. You go check it out at patreon.com slash The Nomi Key Show and uh, enjoy this interview. Hello, TNS book club members and those who are tuning in for the first time. We are so excited to have our guest today. He is the author of How to Blow Up a Pipeline, Learning to Fight in a World on Fire. Very, very, very relevant right now. Uh, And also is a scholar of human ecology, the author of Progress of the Storm, Nature and Society in a Warming World, and Fossil Capital, The Rise of Steam Power and the Roots of Global Warming. Uh, Of course, our guest is Andreas Malm. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Nome. It's a real pleasure being with you. So I'm um I'm in Greece 
And you may have heard, (laughs) exactly. You may have heard that there are over at this point, I think 540 uh, wildfires that have spread across Greece. Um, Of course, the Pacific Northwest in in the United States where I'm from um, has also been on fire. Uh, And I feel like every day on our show, we're just saying, uh, you know, why isn't Washington reacting in a more effective way? Why isn't the EU? I mean, we have to do more to be able to respond because we're in the midst of climate change. And so your book to me um, was sort of this, this like, okay, what? <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I mean, we've been, I mean, at least in the States, it's like the debate is still over whether or not climate change exists. It's like, we, your house is on fire. Man. Who cares who caused it? Fix it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, mean, I, I, I totally share your feelings. And after, after a summer like this, where it really feels like the planet has been on fire or it's, it's, it's been this season in global hell, that's precisely the feeling, the, the immense frustration that I have. And I'm sure that many, many people have. And indeed, polls indicate that uh, the, the, the vast majority of people around the world want radical emissions cuts and, uh, and a completely different kind of climate action than what we're seeing. But uh, yeah, clearly our rulers are not so far showing themselves capable of doing what's necessary. It seems there's there's definitely some sort of overlap between um, a small group of people that voters, I should say, at least I'm going to speak on behalf of the United States, because obviously it's more complicated when you get into other countries. But um, in the U.S., there's a small group that are voting um, science deniers in some way or form, climate deniers, uh, vax deniers. There's an overlap when you look at the Zen diagram of, (laughs) of who these folks are. But ultimately, it's capital who is facilitating these narratives and pushing these narratives out and allowing them conti- to continue. And I think what just doesn't make sense to me as, as somebody who covers this every day is capital is bound to be hurt by climate change and is, is hurting um, with the effects of climate change. Granted, not maybe their short-term uh, results, maybe there's disaster, all sorts of things that, that can be done. But at the end of the day, if you don't have a planet... <laughs> Money's not going to go. It's, your, your fifth home doesn't matter. Sixth home, whatever it is. So I, I, I guess what's mm. confusing is, is, I mean, yes, the tactics need to be raised because our rulers are so beholden to capital. Um, mm. But why, why have other movements? I mean, you, you talk about this in your book, but other movements who've raised the stakes, who've really stepped up their game in terms of of, of protest tactics. Mm. Why is that? For the people who are fighting, those stakes rose versus right now where so many of us are dealing with climate change, in, it's in our faces and the tactics haven't risen uh, to that level yet. I mean, it seems like it's even even worse than other situations. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, it's it, to me, it's a deepening mystery. It's it's deepening by the week, uh, almost. That's that's what it feels like to me, at least. Uh, I mean, if you consider Greece, there 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 are coal mines in Greece, there are uh, oil and gas pipelines in Greece, and Greece is on fire. So why there is why is there so little protest, uh, if any, <laughs> uh, and so little collective action? And and Greece is a country that isn't foreign to militant protest. I mean, we've seen quite a bit of that in Greece over the past decade. Um, but you, I mean, you can ask the same question about virtually anywhere in the world where these disasters have happened. Just this summer, 
with the floods in in Germany, for instance, I mean, there, there is a little bit of climate activism going on in Germany, uh, perhaps more than in most places in the global north. But I mean, generally, there's there's no uh, collective action that corresponds to the scale of the problem and to the misery that people are experiencing right now. And that is hard to explain. Why aren't people out on the streets? Why are they not fighting when they know or at least they should know that it's their lives that are at stake. And also, I mean, it's not like this summer is what it's going to be like. Uh, there is this misconception that, aha, uh-huh, the summer of 2021, okay, this is global warming. No, I mean, global warming has no stable baseline, no average normal, no stagnant rule. It's a spiral that gets worse and worse and worse. The more CO2 that is put into the atmosphere, the worse it gets. And more CO2 is put into the atmosphere all the time. And fossil fuel companies are preparing to get more oil and gas and coal out of the ground to burn even more. And this is just uh, accelerating in a kind kind of compulsive automatic process that is presided over by our governments. And people should, uh, I mean, the feeling that I have after something like this is that wake up, folks. I mean, it's uh, this is nothing that we can adapt to because it's not going to be like this summer. It's going to be worse five years down the road or 15, uh, not to say 50 years down the road with continued business as usual. This summer will uh, appear in hindsight very benevolent benevolent compared to what's to come so people really should get get off their asses and and uh, the climate movement needs to get back in in action like it was a couple of years back before the pandemic broke out but then i also think that people need to escalate escalates the keyword here i mean you'd think that we would have escalated that the climate movement would have escalated uh after Katrina, um, yeah. after, I mean, Hurricane Maria, yes, there was a lot of organizing in, in Puerto Rico. Um, but again, it's not enough. It's 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 the same argument I make when I say, yes, it's so wonderful that progressives are getting elected to Congress, but it's not enough right now. We need, it, 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 you know, a couple here and there, it really has to be militant. And, and so I guess you mentioned militancy, and I feel like, is that the missing component? Are we, we're... Have movements just become weakened over the, even though we've grown in sizes, it, 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 clearly there's an awakening that's happening, but the mm. militancy seems to be just missing from the equation at a time yes, when we but, need it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, the, the strange thing is that it's missing from the climate movement, which is waging a very important struggle. It's, I mean, it's not missing in certain other movements, notably the BLM movement in the in the in the big uh, uprising in the wake of the murder of George Floyd had a militant component. It started with quite a lot of property destruction and the the conquering and burning down of the police station in the third precinct in Minneapolis, which served as a kind of catalyst for the movement to leap to a nationwide mass scale that we hadn't seen before. And there was a radical flank in the BLM protests all through that wave last summer in the U.S. Part of a movement that was the largest in American history if you count by the number of people who participated in street rallies and, you know, something like 20, 30 million people. And it's that it's, it's that mass groundswell of unrest that we need in the struggle against uh, the climate crisis and more particularly in the struggle against fossil capital that is, you know, pouring fuel on the fire all the time as we speak. And uh, I don't, I'm not arguing that Everyone has to go out and smash things and destroy, I don't know, whatever. 
machines, uh, infrastructure. But I do think that just as that uprising against uh, the systematic killing of African-Americans at the hands of police in the U.S. had that component of more confrontational struggle, so will the climate movement need to have such a component. And it, it strangely hasn't developed that component yet because we've been extremely gentle and timid and well-behaved in our pleas to politicians to please uh, do something about this. But I don't think, I mean, we need to be, frankly, quite outraged by now, given that things still go on, you know, and, and it happens everywhere. Mm-hmm. With the Biden administration now showering fossil fuel companies and licenses to, to, to drill and pump for, for oil and gas and yeah, the UK government is planning to open a new uh, massive oil field in, in the, outside the Shetland Islands. The, the Germans are continuing with their lignite mines. S- the Swedish government with Social Democrats and Greens, and it just okay. uh, approved a massive new highway construction project in uh, Stockholm that will cause our emissions to balloon and so on and so forth. And this should make people, I mean, when people see what what this is bringing us now with only just a little more than one degree of global warming, people should be pissed off. Well, it's it's crazy to me because you mentioned BLM and and the the protests that happened um, in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor last year. But uh, just like the Women's March, great. And then what happened? What happened? you know, so even with the the small militancy that was happening with those protests, and, and let's not forget there were many leaders who denounced that militancy because it was just a bad look for their movement, um, mm-hmm. building, you know, uh, uh, building coalitions, which, you know, my perspective on this is the coalitions are really important to getting you to that point. But that you hit the point where you had the consensus. Now mm-hmm. is when you get militant because you have the leverage. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think like in the in the climate movement right now, it just it just seems um there's like a Stockholm syndrome almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the polls you mentioned, you said the polls, everybody understands for the most part, most mm-hmm. sane people who believe in science understands mm-hmm. that something needs to happen right away. Mm-hmm. And and I don't even know if if the politicians who believe that something needs to happen or or mm-hmm. believe in climate change, or I don't even I don't even understand what the perspective is because I, I know that Joe Biden believes in climate change mm-hmm. and then he signs these these, these agreements, but they're movable. They're movable. Mm-hmm. And it's as mm-hmm. if the coalition that was built to pressure these politicians is now frozen. You have mm-hmm. the numbers now. Mm-hmm. Now is the time to get militant. And so mm-hmm. looking back at the Women's March and looking back at the George Floyd protests, I, I, I sit back and I think there was a moment where vast, radical change could have happened mm-hmm. with that leverage of those people. And then it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if the moment's lost, um, but in this situation, the numbers are there. And maybe there is a certain type of pressure that Joe Biden can get that will move him in a direction where he does not have to sign off on drilling um, because it's just a bad look. I mean, he already did it with Keystone XL and uh, I mean, one step, <laughs> but but militancy. I mean, what, what is what is successful um, escalation of tactics look like? I mean, l- looking at past movements globally. I mean, you, you've documented this in your book. Yeah, so, I mean, my argument in the book is that the idea that movements are only successful when they stick to absolutely peaceful nonviolence doesn't really stuck up because the, the evidence of, 
movements, um, uprisings, revolts that have been reasonably successful suggests that uh, it's rather the rule that these movements contain uh, elements of property destruction and confrontations with uh, the forces of of the prevailing order, as in as in riots uh, and things like that. And for the climate movement, I think, I mean, I wouldn't endorse indiscriminate escalation as in we should do whatever it takes and adopt any kind of method. So, for instance, I think it would be very bad and damaging to the movement if anyone started assassinating, say, fossil fuel executives or, or going after people and harming their bodies and, in the worst case, taking their lives, that would be extremely detrimental to the movement, just as it would have been if, if, if BLM activists would have, I don't know, assassinated police chiefs or sent suicide bombers into police headquarters. I mean, it's not that you can do whatever you like, and I'm not arguing that. What I suggest is that sabotage and the destruction of the property that is actually destroying the planet. And what I mean by this is things like wrecking, neutralizing uh, coal mines or pipelines that are under construction or infrastructure for uh, taking more fossil fuels out of the ground, which should now be considered a form of violence against people. Uh, These things could be put out of order without people being hurt and it would be justified and it would be a way of ramping up the pressure and it would be a, 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 a tactic for telling people that this is the source of our misery. If we don't let if, if we don't take these machines and these infrastructures offline, we're just going to have more and more of these fires coming our way, more and more of the hurricanes, of the storms, of the floods and everything. And it's it would be a way to demonstrate to governments that unless you are prepared to act against these companies, we have to do it. Ordinary people, in sheer self-defense and in the, in the interest of survival, and we're going to to push you to act on this and to start phasing out fossil fuels as fast as humanely possible. Uh, but clearly, governments are not doing this of their own accord, of their own initiative. So there has to be pressure from below. And uh, what's really deplorable, I think, is the absence of that pressure right now. Uh, I hope that the climate movement uh, gets back uh, into the streets. Uh, you know, it kind of froze when the pandemic broke out and and uh, almost suspended activities. It, it urgently needs to get back into full gear and uh, and grow by uh, orders of magnitude. And it's a little bit strange to me also that, that when you see these things like wildfires in California or what's going on in Greece or in Turkey or the floods in Germany, or we, have, we just had uh, extreme floods in part of, of Sweden. There is no climate action time to these events. Yeah. So these events, they are, you know, they are, everyone knows or everyone should know at least that they are the result of the accumulation of CO2 in the atmosphere, but they, they still don't induce any action in the moment. And the climate movement so far has followed a kind of mechanical calendar with timing actions to specific Fridays or to UN summits or things like that. But we need to learn to strike when the iron is hot and tell people, show people through concrete action what has to be done unless we're just, you know, letting this spiral of destruction go on without ever 
fighting back and trying to stop it. So. And meaning they need to be, I mean, it's, it's like every organ, organization or movement, you need to be nimble. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's ultimately it. Yeah. Um, yeah. If they know you're coming on a Friday, they're not going to pay attention. And I, that's what I love about your book is you, you highlight these different uh, successful, um, you know, actions and, and, and uh, escalations, I guess you could say. Um, and they've all, they're all nimble. They're all reactive to mm-hmm. a moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I look at, but I guess the one, the one standout for me, um, having been there and early on and, um, was Standing Rock. And again, I mean, I, I, I worry because mm-hmm. you have these really incredible, uh, movements that have grown in the last few years and yeah. being at Standing Rock, um, being at the organizing, you know, the, the rallies that were organizing around Standing Rock early on and seeing how a couple of teenagers, few teenagers mm-hmm. could turn this into a huge, huge, huge movement. But at the end of the mm-hmm. day, did we raise awareness? Yes. Mm-hmm. Did are, are more people in, you know, aware of, of the ties between the environmental movement movement and um, the slaughter of indigenous people? Of course, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. the pipeline still went on. Obviously this was in the Trump administration, mm-hmm. Um, and there are more pipelines and, you know, Biden can say, okay, we're, we're going to suspend, uh, this pipeline here, but there's still 75 more. And there are indigenous people protesting. It's, it feels like it's almost so big that the the style of escalation needs to be so creative. Um, and I don't, I don't know what that looks like. I mean, what do you see that looking like right now? with monopolies, with capital, understanding the tactics. Um, what does it look like? Yeah, what does it look like? That's the, that's the big question. I mean, I, I don't have a recipe and I don't have a, a clear uh, like model for what it's going to look like. I just have a, I mean, my, my personal sense is just that we need to try every, almost everything, not everything literally, but almost everything that we can. And this can include parliamentary campaigns. I mean, things like the Sanders campaign, although obviously it was unsuccessful, just as the Corbyn campaign in, in, in the UK. But I mean, ranging from parliamentary campaigns to uh, to sabotage and property destruction and virtually everything in between. And uh, I don't I don't think there is one syllable. I don't think there's one magical tactic. I think there needs to be a diversity of tactics and initiatives uh, happening. Uh, I mean, I worry that because we're in this trough, we're in this in this period where the climate movement in the global north is very passive uh, compared to what it was in, in 2019 when, when it reached a kind of peak, at least here in Europe, uh, historically speaking. Um, uh, then it was the school strikes. It was Extinction Rebellion. Um, it was climate camps. I don't know if the next wave of climate activism will have the exact same components, uh, but there should be, you know, this this wide spectrum, this plethora, this uh, you know, multiplicity of uh, of of struggles and ways of organizing. If we're going to turn this around, because yes, I mean, and and I, I I mean, I share your 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 view. Is this likely to happen? No, it's probably quite improbable that we'll we'll win this battle. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try, because you don't you don't base your interventions, your your politics on probability assessment. As in, I think this outcome is is likely, and therefore I go with, with that outcome and support it. No, you 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 struggle for what you think is right, and right now what is right is to stop fossil fuels, 
and uh, uh, and get them out of our economies and get rid of these companies that profit from from uh, selling them. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about this. You mentioned the climate camps and and um, everything that was happening a couple of years ago, and uh, and I was, you know, watching the the presidential campaign um, of Bernie Sanders. You know, seeing a lot of these organizations mm-hmm. negotiate with the Democratic Party to effectively change the platform. Um, yeah. And having been on the platform committee, I can tell you, all right, that's doesn't mean anything, but a lot of yeah. energy was being put into this. And, you know, to me, it's just, it's another version of how the, the, the nonprofit industrial complex really um, slows down any really meaningful impact. So I, you know, I'm, I ask you, does this need to really come from organizations or can it just be, you know, rogue actors, essentially, can somebody watching right now say, you know what, I know that uh, they're drilling in my neighborhood, or or I I live in North Dakota, or um, you're in Greece, and you know they're drilling off of the coast of the Lacanisa, or whatever it is. Um, can can an everyday person just go rogue? Well, I I don't know. I think there needs to be we we need, we are in such dire straits that we need to experiment with different forms of action and different forms of or, of organizing. Some some forms of organizing need to be completely open and transparent and fully accessible for everyone. In other cases, I think it makes sense to experiment with smaller groups uh, doing actions that um, are, you know, are to an extent conducted in secret and uh, cannot be joined by everyone uh, to, to, to take it one step further, so to speak. Uh, and I think, I mean, I think, yeah, you, you're you're rightly referring to experiences in recent years, and I think that both in North America and in parts of Europe, only parts of them, but in certain parts of Europe, there is a tradition of protest uh, to draw on. Uh, and I'm thinking here, particularly in Europe, uh, about France, which has gone through you know cycles of social struggle in recent years. Uh, but which doesn't really have a, a strong climate movement, uh, but it needs to have one because the the single largest private company in France is Total, and Total uh, is about to build the world's largest, longest, sorry, heated oil pipeline uh, for shipping crude um, f- through Tanzania and Uganda, <clears throat> and uh, you know we know by now that we can't have any more new installations for taking fossil fuels out of the ground and putting them on fire. Even completely mainstream organizations such as the International Energy Agency is saying that we can't have any new installations if we're going to have any chance of uh, uh, passing the threshold of 1.5 degree global warming. And here you have a case of of the the largest company in France initiating this massive project um, and France is not alien to, to you know, uh, militant contestation on the streets. So why is there not a Fr- French movement out on the streets um, targeting Total and demanding that it, it immediately shelve this project? Uh, and and I think in the in the case of France, there is um, you know there is a, 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 um, an ex, you know a whole. Um, set of experiences of how you can wage social struggles that, that could be drawn on. And I think the same goes for 
for for the US and for for other countries that where where people have been on the front lines in, in recent years. Uh, okay, so so final question. Uh, I I know the answer to this, but <laughs> I just have to ask: Does the Paris Accord do anything that is worthwhile? Is it is it actually significant? I mean, you talk about France and and Macron mm-hmm. being one of the the great leaders of the Paris Accord, um, criticizing Trump, but in his own backyard, like you said, yeah, yeah, Patel yeah, is yeah. taking these uh, yeah. Yeah. making these moves. Yeah. So say that again. Is is, is the Paris anything? Accord? Is is it is it anything? Is, oh, it, is the Paris Accord anything? Is it nothing sauce, as we like to say? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yes, it is. I think it is. But the, the Paris Accord and and figures like Biden or Macron, who pay lip service to climate action, they are more amenable to popular pressure than someone like Donald Trump or the far right government in Poland or the far right government in Sweden, which is a crazy climate denialist party just like the Republicans in the US that will most likely be part of the next government coalition in this country. These parties and these figures are not susceptible to the pressure that you can that you can leverage on politicians that have promised to do something about this because then you you can hold them to account and say well fulfill your promises and don't let any more new pipelines be built. Uh, so that that's that's some. I mean, that's an asset in a sense. I mean, it's it is better to have Joe Biden in the White House than Donald Trump. Not necessarily because he is uh, terminating the fossil fuel industry as he should be, but that he has at least nominally recognized the existence of the problem, and therefore he can be uh, potentially pushed. Like Barack Obama could be uh, towards the end of his second term with the struggles around uh, the Keystone XL and the Dakota Access pipelines. Uh, so, and and Paris, the Paris Accords, likewise, in and of itself, I think as as an agreement, it is pretty useless because it it has no uh, system of sanctions. There are no binding obligations. All countries just say we want to do this, and there is no mechanism for making sure that countries live up to what they say they want to do. It's a you know free-for-all, do whatever you want. And that is not just, and it's not going to be efficient at the end of the day. But these targets that countries, that governments set up can be used by climate movements to push governments to say, you're not living up to what you are saying that you would do. Uh, in relation to the Paris Accords. I mean, th- this is uh, this is happening in Sweden and France and many other places uh, where where climate movements can very easily point to the to the total discrepancy between the ambitions that governments have formally uh, you know submitted to the Paris Accords and what they're doing in reality. And that that should be used strategically by the movement. Really fascinating book and conversation. Um Hopefully people listening and watching are going to take this to heart and be creative and thoughtful and seek out allies that are also as creative and courageous uh, and, and thoughtful in, when taking on um, big oil and any of these, these projects that are happening. And of course, lawmakers as well, who, you know, are frozen. Um, Andreas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for this book. And, thank you, Nomi. It was a real pleasure. Real, you know, if you have any ideas or anything, you know, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> it's not in secret over here, but you know, we can wink, wink, yeah, nod, yeah. nod, and speak in code, I guess. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And if you're not already a member of the book club, go check it out at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. You get a copy of the book and 
a conversation with the author if the author's around or somebody who's an expert. Sometimes we have books that are a little bit older, uh, like The Plunkett of Tammany Hall, where we didn't, we actually couldn't pull somebody from Tammany Hall. But uh, yes, you can go check it out at patreon.com slash The Mickey Show. Thanks for joining us for Fun Friday. We will see you next week, but make sure to check out the committee program on Monday right here on YouTube at 3 p.m. Eastern. Go check it out. I have a, I'm going to bet that they're probably going to talk about Afghanistan, but much, much more. Go check out the committee program with Run Chowdhury and many others. And then we will see you right back here on Wednesday uh, in all the places that we are on YouTube, Twitch, and of course, Patreon and as a podcast. Thanks to everybody in State Solidarity. No Mickey show. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Mickey Show.